Listen to your favorite podcasts on any device with Pocket Casts. You can start an episode on your phone during your commute, pick up where you left off on your laptop at work, then finish at home on a smart speaker like Alexa without missing a beat. Download the free Pocket Casts app today for Android or iOS. Find us online at pocketcast.com or use the app on Alexa, Chromecast, Sonos, Apple Watch, and CarPlay. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In June 1780, thousands of British troops fired on unarmed crowds in London. Several hundreds were killed and more died of their wounds later. The soldiers were putting down riots that had ranged for a week. Originally aimed at Catholic property, it broadened out, storming and burning prisons as well as chapels. These became known as the Gordon Riots, after the man who arguably sparked them off with his petition. And they're said to be both the most destructive riots that London has seen and, according to some historians, the closest that Britain has come to a revolution. With me to discuss the Gordon Riots are Ian Haywood, Professor of English at the University of Roehampton, Katrina Kennedy, Director of the Centre for 18th Century Studies at the University of York, and Mark Knights, Professor of History at the University of Warwick. Mark Knights, London was at the heart of the British Empire, but what were the strains of that empire in the 1770s which related to the riots we're about to talk about? Well, those strains were really quite considerable. Um, I suppose the most obvious context uh, actually is in the North American and the Canadian context, which may seem very remote, is actually really important here. Um, so Britain conquered Canada in 1760 and Canada was full of French Catholics and that created a problem for a Protestant empire and the decision that had to be made was whether those Catholics gained toleration. And that was given to them controversially in 1774. But that act created huge waves. Ripples in North America created vast anxieties about the growth of popery in North America, but also back domestically at home, increased anxiety about the growth of popery and authoritarian government, which had ushered it in. The second sort of big imperial context in the late 1770s is, of course, the American War, which was also in part provoked by that anxiety about popery. Um, and the war uh, in the North American colonies had gone very badly for Britain. Um, 1779, really very disastrous year of, of campaigning, the southern colonies lost and so on. Um, and that this war is not just located in North America, but it's a global war. So it's vastly expensive taxation levels having to rise very, very steeply, uh, and that, of course, also increasing a lot of domestic unrest. And as I understand it, many people in England, or quite a lot of people in England, thought the Americans are right, and many people in England also thought the government was dithering and, and, and inept to an extent that was making the whole thing much worse year on year. Absolutely. We could think of that American war as almost a civil war, uh, because the colonists thought of themselves as Englishmen um, and this was very much a, a divisive war both in the colonies and at home um, there are vast amounts of petitions which were collected both in favour of the war and against the war. In this country? In this country yeah uh, um, 
If people were unhappy with anything, most people didn't have the franchise, most people didn't vote, most people couldn't have an influence in Parliament, what did they do? So one of the most important mechanisms uh, for expressing the popular voice was the petition. Um, and that's, of course, what uh, Gordon uses, as you've already alluded to. Um, the petition was... Uh, in some ways a sort of rival to the parliamentary voice and there was always this tension in British political culture between the elected representatives and the direct voice of the people as expressed through petitioning and that's a very very long-standing tension across the 17th and the 18th century. Um, so petitioning it was used by those who opposed and were in favour of the, of the American war. It was also used at the time that Gordon was, was gathering uh, momentum for his campaign, was also being used to put pressure on Parliament for parliamentary reform. And this was an ancient and valued right that people thought they had for centuries, literally, for, I'm sorry you used the word literally, for centuries. They, it was a valued right. If you, if, if you were disquieted, you could get a petition together and take it to Parliament and ask them to consider it. That's right. It stretches right back to medieval times, but it becomes very, very controversial in the 17th century. Without being silly about it, another way they could express their dissatisfaction, sometimes very positively, was by rioting. Absolutely. There's a whole spectrum of tactics that uh, could be used. Um, so the petitioning is obviously the peaceful route, but you could accelerate through street protests, uh, rebellion, riot, etc., the nub of this, uh, Katrina Kennedy, was that the government wanted to bring in a Catholic Relief Act. Why did they do that? And why did the Catholics need relief? So Catholics up until this point um, uh, suffer from a range of disabilities that have been in place since the 1690s. So um, Discriminations as well. Discriminations, yeah. yes. So um, Catholic worship is illegal. Um, Catholic priests who are found um, performing mass are liable to uh, life imprisonment. Catholic schoolmasters similarly are liable to life imprisonment. Catholics can't vote. They can't practice at the bar, um, they can't hold public office, um, they can't buy land. So uh, they can't a, go to Oxford or Cambridge. Exactly, they can't matriculate. So from, they can't get um, into the power establishment power structure. Exactly. So uh, there's a range of very severe disabilities against Catholics, and the Relief Act actually is quite modest in what it's proposing in terms of Catholic relief. It doesn't grant Catholics full freedom of worship, but it does remove the worst of the disabilities that they suffer. So it um, removes the um, life imprisonment for priests or schoolmasters. Um, it allows Catholics who take the oath of allegiance, a modified oath of allegiance, to serve in the army and it also allows them to buy land. Now, the reasons for the introduction of the Catholic Relief Act are partly to do with the fact that actually the, the most severe of the penalties have fallen into disuse by this point, by the late 18th century, um, because they're perceived as too harsh. Um, and there is an increasing attitude on the part of English elites, Protestant elites, um, in favour of a degree of toleration for Catholics. So it's partly reflective of that, but it's also very much linked, as um, Mark has already said, to the context of the American War. Um, so George Gordon sees 
in the Relief Act what he see, sees as a diabolical purpose, which is to arm Catholics against American Protestants. And actually, that is one of the incentives. It turns out that they are looking to recruit more manpower into the British army and they're looking to Catholics, particularly Catholics in Scotland, for that injection of manpower. The, there was an, at the same time, there was an underground culture of Catholicism still going in England. Mm. There were private chapels, people getting yes. rounded, the great landowners and also mm. in some of the foreign embassies and so mm. on. So it was there. Absolutely. So there is a small, I mean, the numbers we're talking about are very small. Mm. Catholics only make up about 1% of the population of England um, at this time. Um, So they're a small community, but there are still, you know, there's some wealthy Catholic landowners still. Because it was only in 1745, which wasn't very long before, mm. when John Pony Prince Charlie had come down and there was a Catholic-led army which went to Derby, mm. could have gone on to London, for some reason turned back at Derby. So it must have been in people's minds that these Catholics were not to be trusted. Absolutely. A so lot of people's minds, as we're going to find out. Yes, so since the Reformation, of course, Catholicism has been um, held... Uh, accountable for the persecution of Protestants, for plots against the British state from the gunpowder plot onwards. And then into the 18th century, those fears are kept alive by the Jacobite rebellions in 1715, 1745. That's becoming less of a threat into the 1770s. Really, um, Jacobitism is in terminal decline. In 1766, James III, the old pretender, dies. And at that point, the Pope withdraws um, his support for the Stuart dynasty's claim to the British throne um, and uh, recognises George III as the rightful heir to the British throne. But nevertheless, memories are long and can be yes. can be heated mm-hmm. up. Ian Haywood, tell us about George Gordon, Lord Gordon. I'm glad you've asked the question because I think it's important to separate the kind of myth about Gordon that grew up in the wake of the riots from the, the biographical man. I think in current parlance, we'd probably call him a charismatic politician if we've been quite flattering. He became known as a kind of demagogue or, you know, a fanatical, a kind of religious bigot who was, you know, prepared to see, you know, central London burnt to the ground before he'd give an inch, you know, to, of, of, of civil liberties to, to Catholics. In fact, you know, he was a skilled politician. He's from a Scottish noble background. You know, he's highly educated. He went to Eton. He saw service in the Navy. He was a midshipman. And we think that it's while he was uh, serving in America, he was stationed in America, that he first kind of absorbed, you know, as kind of zeal, a, a support for the American cause, which at that time the British government, of course, was trying to crush, as, as, as we've just uh, heard. Um, he, uh, he was inspired by John Wilkes, who was a similar kind of figure in the 1760s, who stood up against Parliament for press freedom, which we're now benefiting from as we sit here, um, and it's worth saying, you know, that some of the riots associated with John Wilkes, particularly when he was released from prison, were only 12 years earlier in 1768. So the memory of those riots, you know, was fresh in, in people's minds. When the war broke out between Britain and, and the colonies, the American colonies, like many liberals who were serving officers, he resigned his commission 
he would not fight, you know, against the colonies. And he decided to become a politician so he could pursue his, his campaign against the government in Parliament. And indeed, you know... He was he, very active for Protestantism. He thought it was the greatest religion, the greatest aspect of religion and, and had benefited what he thought of his country very well indeed. I think so. And I think he absorbed a lot of that from the Scottish background because, of course, Scotland had a very strongly Protestant, indeed you could argue maybe extreme Protestant, Presbyterian religious culture. So he, you know, his first his first speech in Parliament, he asked the British government to call off its butchers against the Americans. This was a kind of vivid oratory that was acceptable in those days in Parliament. But his real moment came the following year in 1779, when the government tried to impose a similar act on Scotland. And he saw this as his moment, you know, this was his moment in history. So he went to Scotland and basically very quickly rose through the ranks of the Protestant Association and became the president. And the point being that the, the campaign to prevent the act being introduced in Scotland was a success. Now, there was violence. You know, the, the, it was a very militant campaign that there was violence, but it did, in fact, stop the introduction of the act in Scotland. And I think, you know, flush with the success of that, he was then the, the natural successor, you know, for the English Protestant Association, uh, which Mount started to up its campaign in the early months of 1780. So, you know, he's elected president in January 1780, and it's in the ensuing months that we head towards the, you could say, fatal events of 2nd of June. So he came down to England, and he got mm. this enormous petition together by the per capita, 44,000 people for it to sign a petition, given how many people couldn't write. It was an enormous feat of organisation yeah. to get that. And people said their, their, their names were faked, as they always say about these things, but it's been proved they were not faked. And how did he do that? I think I would probably defer to Mark for the specifics, but ju just, just on the, the size of the petition, there is, a, there is a, an engraving, if people are interested about this showing the showing the petition being carried to parliament you know and it almost looks like it's a, it's a, it's a kind of uh, you know religious procession with this huge parchment being carried on this man's shoulders like a burden so what happened on this day 2nd of june mark so gordon uh, announced that he wanted um, to be followed uh, with the petition by a large number of supporters to prove that they were all genuine signatures and he wanted 40,000 people to join him. So he organised a very large um, meeting in St George's Fields in Southwark where Waterloo Station now is um, and divided his followers there into four camps uh, for Westminster, London, um, Southwark, and there was a Scots brigade there. He then zoomed off in a in a carriage to Parliament, and the uh, petitioners then marched towards Parliament. As they did so, they gathered more people and perhaps some less. Um, uh, salubrious characters joined uh, the, the, the group at that point and they arrived at Parliament and occupied the lobby of the House of Commons. It's a very, very dramatic moment as well because this huge role of the petition was on the floor of the House of Commons and MPs were being asked essentially whether they would debate this petition. And what was the answer? And the answer, well, th there is a debate amongst MPs about whether to do this. But in the end, they decide uh, against, they decide to defer, essentially, the, the debate. But Gordon is taking advantage of that. He's nipping out during the debate into the uh, balcony overlooking the lobby and giving his supporters a sort of running commentary on who's opposing the petition. 
um, including characters like Edmund Burke, um, who he specifically name-checks as somebody who's not a friend to the petition. And at the end of that day afternoon, uh, they decided they would defer it. And he, as I understand it, you know, if we take this up in, as I understand it, Gordon said to his supporters, go home quietly and we'll come back again when they've thought it through. Yes, and and they were given until the 6th of June, so they go until, until the following Tuesday. But uh, what's normally said is that at this point he'd lost, he lost control over the crowd because that night... Uh, the first attacks began, you know, on Catholic targets. Which were the first targets were Catholic chapels. They were they were in in embassies. One was in Lincoln's in Fields, the Sardinian embassy, and the other was in what's now Golden Square in Soho. Actually, that that building's still standing. You can go and see it in so the Bavarian embassy. And these chapels were attacked, and a, and a very specific kind of violence took place which again is very a very distinctive feature of the Gordon riots it wasn't this kind of mindless violence as you suggested in your introductory comments there was a, I suggested a, that it wasn't I think you suggested I it did, wasn't yes. yeah. I just thought they, they, yeah. the, the construction of the sentence might have suggested there was a kind of discipline <laughs> there was a kind of discipline the the writer Horace Walpole you know the son of the first prime minister Sir Robert Walpole was very impressed by what he called a, a mixture of rage and consideration that's what he actually said so what normally happened is the 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 possessions the, uh, the the you know the interiors of these buildings treasures you know specific symbolic objects were brought out like plunder and then turned into a bonfire into a spectacle you know to make a statement the buildings were also sometimes set on fire but the surrounding buildings were protected it was it was very targeted activity it's Katrina can you come in on this it seems that for all the rioting and rampaging, as we're told, mm. and later we can talk about how that turned into the idea of the mob to get mm. rid of it, as it were. They don't matter because they're just the mob, but that's another question. Uh, nobody was killed. Yes. No, that is true, except the rioters themselves, yes. But there doesn't seem to be the any... The rioters themselves falling y- into fire and that yes, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah but they um, didn't kill anybody. Yes, I mean, there are threats of violence. Obviously, there's the risk that... Um, yeah, but nobody was killed. But nobody's killed, yeah. So it is, as um, Ian was saying, it's quite systematic, it's quite targeted. You know, when they're taking the um, valuables and furniture out of those houses to burn it in the streets, of course, they're protecting... The houses on either side um, from being consumed by the flames. They're not just burning things inside the houses. And they're also quite systematic in terms of their selection of targets um, that they um, are going in making sure that the, ca- the houses that they are pulling down, as it were, so that means tearing up the floorboards and breaking the windows that they are Catholic houses Um, so they will go in and search the house and if there's a Protestant prayer book or a Protestant Bible um, then they will spare that house so there's a sense of some kind of system uh, there as well and a focus on perhaps symbolic action um, rather than just you know senseless violence. And this is where we come, I think, to the crucial point. You'll tell me if I'm wrong, obviously. I hope you do. These have been well-behaved, and according to your research, Mark, uh, educated enough, perhaps very well-educated people, uh, using using riots, uh, bad in, bad luck for buildings, but so far not so bad for individuals, maybe, and so on. Let's, let's leave it at that. There's a general enough generalisation, I hope. Uh, it started to spread more widely. Now, at this stage that the idea of the mob, 
the heedless, drunken mob began to take hold of those in authority over them. They set fire to a great Catholic distillery in Hoburn. Gin ran in the gutters. People, The mob was supposed to lick the gin out of the gutters and set it alight so they were burning in the sky like the great fire of London and so on. And the idea of the mob on the rampage as a force took place. Yes. Um, historians are very divided about how to interpret this. Uh, and uh, some historians have stressed that the religious imperative remained very strong throughout this process. I mean, even at the height of the riots, in, in, in a week on, on the 7th and 8th, they're still attacking Catholic um, targets. But you're right that in the second phase, if you like, of the rioting... Towards the 6th of June. Towards the 6th and the 7th and, and the 8th of June, the, the targets seem to become wider. Uh, and principal amongst the targets then are um, symbols of law and order. But they are in some ways related back to the original riots. Prisons, for instance. So a newly built massive prison, 100 metres along the wall, yeah. We're talking about Newgate Prison, the Great Prison, newly built, they attacked that. Yes, this is one of the most dramatic episodes of, of the riots. Newgate Prison uh, went up in flames. It was seems to have been a target because some of the initial rioters were sent to Newgate and the mob, in a sense, was trying to free uh, their their colleagues. But it quickly proliferated to uh, attacks on other prisons as well. So the King's Bench Prison, the Fleet Prison, Clerkenwell, they were all attacked. Um, and so were some of the magistrates who had been um, in charge of trying to bring the rioters to book. So uh, the blind justice, Sir John Fielding, for example, um, is uh, threatened, his house is threatened. Um, Lord Mansfield, um, who's the Lord Chief Justice at the time, very, very closely identified with the Quebec Act of 1774. He's also suspected of converting the king to popery amongst the, the circles of the rioters. He's a frequent target uh, of attack right from the very start. His, his house is looted. His wonderful library is uh, unceremoniously um, dragged out of his house with his furniture and his paintings and burnt. Can I just go to Katrina? I'll come to you. Katrina, I'm interested, and I was from the accounts of all of you and from bits I've read, about the way that he turned into a mob. Now Dickens writes a bit later <laughs> in Barnaby, and he talks about the mob with one of his metaphors, the mob is like this, a mob is like that. It's mob, 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 and the idea of it being intelligent artisans coming to a cause in which they had faith and, and conviction and reason, as they saw it, is lost in the eye of this heedless, headless, drunken mob just breaking things up. And that's before the terrible thing happens. Is that right? Yes. I mean, in, in terms of the later representation, and definitely Dickens in his historical novel about the riots, Barnaby Rudge, um, that is the, the image uh, that he deploys, the idea of the, um, the rioters as this almost elemental force, like the sea. Um, riot as a kind of container Asian, um, that's spreading through the city and you know one of the big set pieces of uh, Dickens novel is the attack as you already mentioned on um, uh, Thomas Langdale the Catholic gin distillers distillery um, and he uh, depicts that as a scene almost out of hell so the combination of 
the rioters who have broken into the cellar of um, uh, the distillery and have started breaking into the casks. Um, reportedly, they even commandeered a fire engine to pump gin out of the uh, stills. And then, of course, when that catches fire, there is a spectacular blaze and there's rivers of flame running through the gin-soaked streets. There's uh, drunken men, women and children in Dickens' account, but he's also drawing on contemporary accounts for that. So that image definitely, as it lodges in the popular imagination, is one that seems to confirm that the kind of the drunkenness, the disorderliness and the unreason of the mob. The mob, the word the mob could be used in a, in a very positive way. I mean, I mean, Charles James Fox, for example, said that it's better to be ruled by a mob than a standing army. You know, and he put it another way once. He said, I'd sooner be ruled by an ill-dressed mob than a well-dressed mob. So this idea that what E.P. Thompson called the moral economy of the crowd existed, this kind of unwritten contract between the rulers and the people, that at various times these kinds of violent outbursts would happen, for very good reasons, usually, you know, there were social economic grievances and there's a kind of venting of this. And then in the wake of that, usually the authorities would give, a, you know, would give a, a kind of response, would give something back. We're at a transitional point. Even Thomas Paine in The Rights of Man, you know, that great revolutionary text that, you know, for publishing that you could be thrown in jail and people were. He still referred back to the Gordon Rights in terms of a mob. And he was distinguishing there between that older form of action which he saw as, you know, as quickly becoming lawless, and a more disciplined form of protest, which is, of course, looking forward to the Chartists, you know, of the 1830s, who also presented monster petitions to Parliament. The term mob um, distills into one word a very, very diverse crowd. And, and of course, there are lots of different interests within that crowd. So you've got your religious fanatics, if we want to call them that, who are pursuing their religious agenda. But we've also got pickpockets who are routinely being reported as as pilfering. Um, And then we've got this um, strain, I suppose, of people who are actually out on on the loot. And and then there's this extraordinary attack on the Bank of England as perhaps the culmination of of the threat to the established order, um, which ratchets up the mob to yet another threatening level. It might be the attack on the Bank of England, which which stiffens the sinews of the City of London. They had held back uh, feared retaliation. They in charge of the city, as it were, police, constabulary um, at, at the time but they introduced martial law which said that if the crowds did not disperse within an hour they could be shot. Yes. And they brought in 10,000 troops. Now can you give me a bit more flesh on that? Yes, so this is, I mean the response of the city authorities in London is seen as being incredibly tardy, so huge destruction has already occurred um, before the Riot Act is even read um, and that's partly seen as resulting from perhaps some sense of sympathy with the um, objectives of the Protestant Association and um, of the rioters, partly out of fear, the Lord Mayor uh, at the time um, is, you know, there's a suggestion that he's he fears reading the Riot Act or um, enforcing or uh, bringing in military force 
in case he becomes um, a target for the rioters. Um, but eventually uh, those, the, the uh, London authorities are overridden and it is decided that the um, army will be able by to... By um, Well, by the government at the, uh, the time so, um, and with the king's blessing um, that... Uh, without a magistrate reading the riot act that troops will be able to fire on the rioters so that actually is a very controversial episode where did they get mm. 10,000 troops at that short notice um well britain's at war there's a threat of french invasion so a lot of them are, are positioned along the southeast coast so it does take some time for them to arrive into uh london but uh they're um, marching from those encampments um uh, around the southeast coast camping in hyde park that's uh, where they're sending them so they turn up uh They've got an hour, and a lot of them don't disperse an hour. Perhaps don't hear. Mm. Anyway, they don't, for some for one reason or another. And then they let, and then they fire. And according to different reports from three of you, differing and different reports from more people, between three hundred and seven hundred were killed, and many more were died afterwards as a result of injuries. And something like um, four hundred were tried and um, under a sentence to death, only 65 were, were executed, and on and on it went. Would you like to comment on that? Yes. I mean, the, the, the quelling of the riots and the, and the judicial process, the aftermath, is actually very interesting. It's not quite what you expect. I think the numbers executed were actually 20, 25, as far as I know. So, as usual in the British penal system which of course was very harsh I think listeners might need to know or be reminded of the fact that at this time offences against property and this could involve just really casual theft uh, potentially carried a, a capital you know was a capital offence so you could be hanged for you know stealing a watch or stealing a handkerchief stealing a loaf of bread um, so it was a very harsh system so you would expect, expect the full might of the law to have come down on these on these writers now this was controversial wasn't it Edmund Burke for example um, tried to persuade the government to only execute what he th- called the ringleaders so he, he was he, he thought about six was about about the right number well it was considerably more than that it was it was 25 and we do know about these people obviously from the trials and we do have their identities and you know this this shows quite convincingly for a start that the rioters were not this kind of you know riffraff of you know of the kind of lump and proletariat you know the majority were skilled artisans tradespeople. one of the ringleaders a man called thomas taplin for instance who dickens drew on in uh, barnaby rudge was a master coachman and he was a man who went round on horseback, you know, kind of extorting money and insisting that people illuminated their houses and led the attack on the Bank of England. What the government decided to do was actually very interesting. Instead of using uh, Tyburn, which was, you know, now Marble Arch, which was the usual place of execution, which was something of a carnival atmosphere, they actually decided to execute people in the vicinity of where the offences were committed. Mark, I, I exaggerated from uh, from my notes. Perhaps I couldn't read my handwriting well enough about how many people were executed. But still, were fewer than I said executed. Partly because people were chastened by how many had been already killed. 
I think the government was very nervous about the repressive policy that uh, could be it was uh, criticized, could actually be counterproductive. The policy was criticised at the time. It, it, exactly. I think it's also worth remembering that it wasn't just the troops that had been brought out to quell this. Uh, the government had also had to rely on citizen militias. And famously, John Wilkes, who was mentioned earlier as having led protests in the previous decade, joined one of those, in fact, headed one of those militias and fired on the protesters. So you have this, do that for? We have this really interesting uh, paradox where one of the leaders of popular protest only a decade before is now firing on the uh, protesters. How did uh, that come uh, about, to, to phrase my question more elegantly? <laughs> uh, so, um, even more ironically, Wilkes was defending the Bank of England. Um, uh, and he decided that it had become a mob that was threatening um, and that the city authorities, although he had a lot of sympathy with, with the city authorities, um, needed to act. And that meant killing people. And he records in his diary that he'd shot several people dead. Um, so the government, in its decisions about how to quell this, is also having to think about how do we how do we incorporate the population to to make this a, an acceptable process. The numbers are still huge, Katrina Kennedy. The numbers killed uh, in the streets, uh, the numbers executed, the numbers injured and, and died afterwards, the numbers transported, and so on and so forth. This is huge. This is London. This is a. a, a imperial capital city where there's supposed to be law and order, civil rights, one thing and another. What did the rioters achieve? Well, in terms of their objective, their primary objective, which is supposed to be repeal of the Catholic Relief Act, they failed. Um, so the, the Relief Act um, is enacted, it's not repealed. Um, and in fact, you know, over the next decade, there's further relief for Catholics. Uh, so in 1791, Catholics are granted full freedom of worship. Um, now, you might say that arguably the protest, the um, revealing of the depth of anti-Catholic feeling does stall further Catholic emancipation. Um, so, uh, for instance, in 1800, when the Act of Union between Britain and Ireland is passed, which incorporates into the United Kingdom many more Catholics, millions, um, that is enacted, or William Pitt um, makes a sort of promise to Irish Catholics that it will be accompanied by full emancipation. Irish Catholics or Catholics will be able to sit in Parliament. Um, but that's vetoed by George III because he says it would have been a violation of his coronation oath. And you can perhaps see how the memory of the riots, the memory of the fact that he was um, claimed to be a popish king at the time, that a lot of the anger was directed at George III, might be influencing some of those decisions. Ian, what was the reaction at the time in, in the press? The press was pounding away there. The press reports, ref in a way, ref reflected quite vividly the, the kinds of points we've been making. I mean, the, the, the failure of the authorities to intervene, for example, was quickly interpreted in a number of ways, as, for example, an expression of the, you know, the city's 
desire to embarrass the government, for example. You know, that was that was one. There were rumours about plots. You know, uh, there was rumours that the French were behind this, or rumours that the Americans were behind this. There was, you know, evi- uh, apparently evidence for this kind of lawless mob that you've uh, 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 mentioned earlier. So that, there was a whole range of opinion. But on the whole, I think what comes out to me mainly as a kind of literary scholar is just how extraordinary, vivid and spectacular this narrative is of the, you know, of this of this week long, you know, quite week long, extraordinary riot where you have all these buildings burning through the night. And this it was a kind of spectacle, I think, to me that impressed itself on the public and that left such vivid descriptions, you know, on the parts of commentators that made the Gordon Wrights what it was. It wasn't so much the kind of political niceties of it. It was as a kind of spectacular event. That, to me, is a legacy because that then haunts the popular imagination whenever you have social unrest subsequently. There's also some really interesting visual satires produced um, and disseminated about uh, this incident. Um, and Katrina just mentioned the perception of George III as a Catholic. There's, there's an extraordinary biting satire of the king as a tonsured monk uh, kneeling in front of an altar uh, with uh, the Protestant petition in his privy behind him. Um, so, uh, and there's an extraordinary uh, cartoon by Gilray of one of the um, Protestant reformers, the Newgate reformers, as who calls it, uh, implying that religion was just being used as a veneer for, for mob activity um, and, and there's Newgate burning in the background. So this visual aspect, I think, is very, very clearly brought home. The first riots that really have that very strong visual presence. Yeah. Katrina, did, this, did, did the news of this rise, the Gordon Rites, spread uh, throughout England and up into Scotland and across into Ireland? Yes, well, there are... um, riots and imitation um, you know during and after that week so in um, you know there's some upheaval in Bath and um, in I'm trying to think of where else Birmingham Birmingham. yeah um, you know so there there are echoes um, elsewhere and um, yes I mean clearly that the um, you know as interconnected uh, nations um, the, the the news is spreading it is kind of raising concern again about the depth of anti Catholic feeling yeah it's also um, in Newcastle there's a mm. really big petition it's got almost 8,000 signatures which again is in the National Archives promoted in Newcastle um, so this isn't just a metropolitan phenomenon although it's primarily located in London it does have ripples out both in the north and in, in the south did this did this send an undercurrent of, of emphasis and effect on the beginnings of reform about forty years later? Yeah. I just say it's quite ironic, really. But apparently, I'll be corrected on this. But on the same day, the second of June, that the riots began, there was a motion in Parliament for universal suffrage. Mm. Yeah, Probably so universal. This, suffrage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Men and women. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. That's your question. No. I'm afraid the word universal <laughs> does not include no. women no. for a long time. Well, then there were women involved in the riots. There were certainly mm. women involved. And now let's stick to this, the this coincidence. Yeah, so, so the 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 basic, uh, if you like, manifesto for universal suffrage, which means male, you know, manhood suffrage, had been in existence since the 1760s. Uh, so it, it really arises in the Wilkes period. So if you like, the question of the, in, with the Gordon Wrights, does it help or does it hinder that cause? And I would say probably hindered it because the, the idea that in order to get popular support, you mobilise the people in the streets, <coughs> excuse me, could always be used then against 
popular reform and indeed it was used you know when, when uh, whenever you know the luddites the swing riots you know the chartists this was always potentially waiting as, as ammunition against them wasn't it katrina yes and just going back certainly in the 1790s when after the french revolution when the campaign for radical reform takes off there is real anxiety amongst groups like the london corresponding um society which is founded in 1792 to campaign for political reform about being perceived as a mob and there's uh, although they do have mass meetings um some involving you know hundreds of thousands um yes again they're very anxious that it must be orderly it must be peaceful there can be no sense of the energies the exuberance of the crowds Interestingly, though, it doesn't destroy petitioning as a, as a popular vehicle. Petitioning remains a fundamentally important way for popular protest to be expressed. This is the people against the parliament, isn't it? It is, the indeed. Vo- Vox Populi against... Uh, absolutely. So the first decades of the 19th century, again, you see petitioning as the sort of fundamentally key instrument. I would say, I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm going to go back on something I said a moment ago. If you look at the Reform Bill crisis of 1830 to 1832, there were some absolutely spectacular riots in the autumn of 1831, particularly in Bristol, also in Nottingham. And you could argue that's when the House of Lords refused to put the uh, bill for reform through, despite the fact it had gone through in the House of Commons. You could argue that at that point, and indeed historians have said this, there was an awakening possibly the last awakening of the spirit of the Gordon riots. Certainly E.P. Thompson has made that uh, analogy. Yeah, absolutely. That fear of revolution yeah. pushing into yeah. reform. You either reform finally. or you have revolution. That often was the motto, wasn't it? Reform or you will have a revolution. Yeah. Last word, Katrina. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I mean, going back to the great historical novel of the um, uh, the Gordon riots, Charles Dickens' Barnaby Rudge, that is, you know, it's published in 1841 and it's very much shaped by a sort of sense of the Chartist movement as being perhaps a possible parallel to the Gordon riots and the risks of that kind of mass uh, platform, that mass upswelling um, of the, um, you know, the populace um, trying to transform or change the political and social order. So he sees the parallels. Slightly surprised that the great democratic novelist uh, didn't see inside the mob the artisans Mm. that we've been talking about. Absolutely. I mean, that's often... There's some sympathy for uh, them. It's not an entirely unsympathetic account, but it is, as you, you know, we've already said, it's that inability to um, see the individuals behind the, the crowd. And finally, what happened to Gordon, Ian? Uh, very ironically, he ends up himself a prisoner in Newgate. Uh, this is because he uh, maligned uh, the, the French Queen, Marie Antoinette. Yeah. He maligned the French Queen, and by this point, he's lost all his kind of uh, elite support, so he can't even be kind of bailed. So he ends his days in the in the prison that was a kind of highlight of the power of the crowd during the Gordon riots. Um, he also converted to Judaism. Well, I was going to say, which and we have managed to not touch on his private life, which impinged quite a deal on his reputation. But let's leave that for another time. Thank you very much, um, Katrina Kennedy, Mark Knight, and Ian Haywood. Next week is the French philosopher Henry Bergson, whose ideas on time and space and duration influenced Proust, Wolf, and Cubism. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
I think we, we missed out a little bit talking about the sort of parallel process of the uh, parliamentary reform process, which is called the association movement. Yeah. Because the two run in parallel. Yeah. And yeah. Um, its primary focus we, uh, its primary focus is in Yorkshire, um, and uh, it adopts very, very similar tactics to Gordon. It creates an association... It uses petitioning, it uses public meetings, and yet it's entirely peaceful. And it looks as though at one point the two processes might combine because they've got similar aims. They both want reform, they want different types of reform. And ultimately they don't join. Mm -hmm. And in fact there's some antagonism <clears throat> between the two processes yeah. because the parliamentary reformers, the Yorkshire reformers, the economical reformers, as they're sometimes called, um, don't want to be associated with the mob violence that's that's unleashed um, in, the, in the Gordon riots. Or with the religious kind of or, zealotry, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. So Sir George Saville, yeah. who's very instrumental yeah. in the reform movement in Yorkshire, yeah. um, is one of the people who the mob targets in, in, yeah. in London. And I was going to say in my review of Gordon's career, the decision to bring the thousands of supporters onto the streets, which was hotly contested, mm. wasn't it, within the uh, Protestant Association, um, was, was only done when these other mechanisms failed. So he did actually try to operate in the corridors of power. He tried to make an alliance, mm. didn't he, with Wyville's Yorkshire Association. Yeah. He went to see the Prime Minister, Lord North. He even had an audience with the King... Mm which you could do in those days if you were a, if you were a member of parliament and he actually took the uh, the kind of manifesto didn't he the uh, the the, the Protestant association the king was singularly unimpressed <laughs> by this so it was kind of when those if if you like you know kind of mover and shaker um, options mm. failed, wasn't it? They then said, right, I'm going to do what, you know, Wilkes and other politicians before me have done. I, you know, I'm going to mobilise the people, mm. didn't he? Yeah. It, was, it was a bit of a last resort to that extent. Yeah. Yeah. Though, of course, it had been a successful tactic north of the border. So mm. there, is a, there is a yes. real With logic there. Yeah, yeah, there was... Mm. Well, I mean, I suppose I was just going to go mm. back to this point about the connections between other political reform movements and... and I suppose the difficult thing to kind of um, maybe for later historians thinking about the riots is trying to fit them within a narrative of political reform or more radical movements that are aimed at changing the social and political order. Um, but of course, Gordon himself has those connections, you know, especially later in the 1780s and early 1790s. He is connected yeah. to um, international radicals, yeah. um, He, uh, especially those who are involved with the French Revolution. Um, so although in some ways he seems to represent a kind of religious bigotry, yeah. there is this, you know, more progressive radical yeah. side the historian yeah. McCalman certainly mm. sees him as a kind of radical mm. sorry as, as, as a radical republican mm. yeah. you know harking back indeed to the mm. 17th century because he modelled himself on the Scottish Covenanters mm. you know who of, of the late 17th century and, he, and in fact uh, Thomas Holcroft who wrote one of the main pamphlets uh, about the uh, about the Gordon Rites soon after the event 
said he, he resembles a, a, a modern Puritan and apparently he dressed a bit like, you know, this, this rather old-fashioned and he spoke in this, in this very kind of antiquated way. Of course, the downside of that is all these accusations against the horrors of popery, isn't it, to, to us now. But on the other side, there's lots of rhetoric of freedom and liberty and the freeborn Englishman, you know, and those, those enshrined rights you mentioned, you know, earlier in the programme. So that can be seen as radical, yeah. but it's got to be weighed against. Mm. He's also a yeah. critic of capital punishment. Mm. Yep. So he's this curious mixture, yeah. isn't he, of yeah. Enlightenment ideas yeah. and counter-Enlightenment ideas. Yeah. Assuming we see anti-Catholicism as counter-Enlightenment, of course, which I guess we should. But, I mean, some historians say that really Catholicism was kind of shorthand for tyranny, wasn't it? So the real... Absolutely, you yes. Know, the real, the real object, the real target yeah. was was political tyranny, not in fact religion. Yes, I mean, if, yeah. if Catholicism is associated with dogma and tradition, yeah. that's opposed to everything that the Enlightenment stands yeah. for. So, yeah. I think that's the tricky thing, kind of seeing how closely intertwined ideas about politics and liberty um, are with these what we might see as more atavistic um, uh, attitudes towards Catholics. That you can be kind of progressive in some ways, but also so, um, you know, quite bigoted in others. I mean, in, mm. in a curious way, dissenters had more in common. I mean, this is, this is always what I see is ironic. Dissenters had more in common mm. with Catholics than they had against mm. them in many ways. They may have been Protestant and Catholic, but they were both discriminated against. Mm. So th this was called the Test Act. You know, the Test Act was the one that discriminated against Protestant dissenters. And indeed, when there were moves to repeal the Test Act... This imagery of, of the mob again, you know, the mindless mob, if you give, you know, if you give the dissenters their freedom, you know, they're going to destroy the whole of the constitution and move towards some kind of, you know, anarchy. All this imagery recurs in the 1790s, mm. doesn't it? Where it's kind of fuelled by the French Revolution as well, isn't it? Can I turn to the French Revolution? In, in the notes, there's some suggestion that <clears throat> this was the Gordon Wright as an inspiration to or a precursor of or there was a connection with the French Revolution Yes, so I, mean, I think thinking about a figure like Edmund Burke of course who's the great polemicist against the French Revolution um, but also has a direct experience of the Gordon Wrights he's targeted during those rights um, as a proponent um, of the Relief Act and you can see ways in which the reflections is haunted maybe by the memory, the experience um, of the um, uh, the riots. So the when he writes it, it's 1790, the French Revolution is still in quite a moderate phase, mm -hmm. and yet he already sees the potential for uncontrolled violence and terror. Based on his experience of the Gordon riots? Arguably, yes, I think that's mm -hmm. one way of looking at it. On the other yeah. hand, Charles James Fox, yeah. you know, when he celebrates mm -hmm. that early stage of the French Revolution, does make a very direct mm -hmm. comparison to the the storming of Newgate, which was called the Bastille. And I think, you know, Newgate, to me, is the kind of pinnacle of the riots. And this is reflected in the engravings because it's an example of crowd power, isn't it, of the power of the people. And they're shown, you know, in this, in this, in this spirit of liberation and they're waving their shackles, you know, the freed prisoners are waving their shackles, aren't they? And they're kind of dancing, you know, rather like words were celebrated, the French Revolution as one great dance, you know, and the Fête de la Fédération. Um, and, and it has been yeah. said that there was six times more property damaged in the London riots, in the Gordon riots, than in the yeah. course of the mm. French Revolution in Paris. Yeah. Um, so that puts it into some sort of perspective. Yeah. Well, I think the producer's waiting to come in. Yes, here he is. Just offering tea or coffee. Tea oh, tea. Yeah, great. please, Thank coffee you. for me, please. Coffee. Tea, please. Tea, tea please. Okay. Tea, please. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
Oi, you. While you're here, have a listen to this, would you? Forest for An environmental thriller for BBC Sounds. I'm so sorry. Meet Pan. Oh, I did. She lives a few centuries from now, after a data crash that wiped out most records of life. So when she finds an old recording of a rainforest, she has no idea what it is. Forest 404, nine-part thriller, nine-part talk, nine-part soundscape. Starring Pearl Mackie, Tanya Moody and Pippa Hayward with theme music by Bonobo. Subscribe now on BBC Sounds. Subscribe now.